Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Dr. Colette Muir about ADD and ADHD in children. This is a two-part series, the first on assessment and diagnosis, the second on management. So make sure you tune into both episodes. Today we're talking about the assessment and diagnosis. So Colette is a developmental paediatrician who works at Starship Hospital at Auckland DHB and also at the Kauri Centre. She trained in Auckland and then completed her developmental paediatric fellowship at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane. Welcome Colette. Hi. So today we're going to use a case-based discussion to highlight the need for a thorough history and a focused examination to get to a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. So our case is Miss M. She's an eight-year-old girl. Her mother brings her in today. Her worry is that she's slow to read. She's highly disorganized and can take three hours to get out the door in the morning. She is the youngest of three children. Her brothers by this stage were reading Harry Potter independently and were in extension classes. Miss M has a good grasp of verbal language and loves looking at books and listening to audiobooks. She was born at term following an uneventful pregnancy and she's been a well child. She's immunized and these are up to date. A comment from her brother this morning prompted today's visit. Mum, is there something wrong with her brain? Has she got ADD or something? So Colette, how do we define ADD and ADHD? So I tend to use the uh, DSM-5 criteria, but before we discuss that, I think most importantly, the way I think about it is if we think of a skill like being able to pay attention and concentrate and or a skill like being able to um, manage your degree of activity or impulsivity, I think it really sits in a bell curve type arrangement. And so what we're really talking about and thinking about is children for whom those skills are really significantly different and harder for them than other children of their age. I think the other important thing to think about is that with ADHD, we really need to think about the part of DSM um, diagnoses that actually says it's actually about function. So it's not so much just that you have difficulty concentrating or difficulty with hyperactivity. It's the fact that this is actually significantly impacting on your ability to function day to day. And most typically that would be at home or at school. Perfect. So how common is ADD or ADHD? If we look internationally, you get quite similar um, similar numbers of usually around 5 to 6% of the population have ADHD. So the way I think about that is probably in every classroom it's in a school, in every class, there's one child, at least, for whom these things would be more difficult than other children of their age. It's interesting if you do compare countries, uh, you know, diagnosis rates are very different, but underlying, there's probably about one in 20 who will have more difficulty with these skills than other children. It seems in my experience that girls are often picked up later. Is this the case? I think there's some important things here. So we know that ADHD can, as we've talked about, present with the difficulties of concentration, attention, and or hyperactivity or impulsivity. And I think what we tend to see is that the children who present with the hyperactivity or impulsivity type symptoms are ones that are picked up a lot quicker. And these are the children that we think of as typical ADHD. We know that a teacher in a classroom can pick that that child's different, and usually parents can pick that as well. And that is a more common presentation amongst boys. 
more commonly amongst girls, although definitely not, um, not only with girls, is the more inattentive presentation of ADHD. And if you are inattentive in the classroom or inattentive at home, but otherwise sitting there not seeming to create problems in the school classroom, then I think that's the type of ADHD that will often be missed or not picked up till later. So assessment, Colette, needs to be comprehensive and include longitudinal information, both from home and school. So do you think primary care physicians are in a position to get this history and start working towards a diagnosis? I think primary care physicians are in an excellent position to be able to do that because I think that longitudinal nature is, is really important here. I think there's also a really important piece around uh, the family, the supports the family have, and any other things that are impacting on that family, which is information that's going to be held really well within primary care. Uh, really important to know how things went for that family, uh, both around the time of birth and soon after, because we're also thinking about whether there could be impacts um, from around that time, of attachment type stuff, whether there could have been any prenatal alcohol exposure. So those are important things to know about at that point in time. Um, knowing about how that um, how things have gone from a behaviour perspective for that child and also for the family over that time. Um, and then knowing how things have been going through their childhood, whether there are any other medical conditions that have impacted. Uh, so I think that longitudinal nature is really, really well done in primary care. But I think having initial discussions about school progress is a really important thing to document as well. What sort of questions should we be asking the family? So I think one of the big things is actually starting with the whole concept of function. So actually talking people through their day and understanding how this child gets on with day-to-day -day tasks, I think is a really important um, place to start. So understanding, I'll often be really interested, how does it go when you're trying to get out the door in the morning? How does that work in your family? Um, and trying to get a real sense about whether there's um, a, a child in, and, and we know that every child may need a bit of prompting, but really understanding what degree of help and support a child is needing to actually be able to do those day-to-day -day tasks in the morning. And also getting a sense from that how the family are coping with that, whether they're putting strategies in place, whether they're becoming overwhelmed with that, I think is really important. Um, then knowing about how things go during the school day, and this is often a secondary report and that you're hearing about it either from the child or what the parent has heard, but really understanding um, if that child is, is struggling. So I'm always really interested to know if the child can pick that they're having difficulties with paying attention or concentrating on things, often that's harder for a child to pick, but they will be able to pick the effects of that. How are they going? How are their friendships going? How is their learning going? And I think that's really important. Um, I think it's really important to understand how the family are managing the situation, um, particularly if there's more than one adult in the household, how different how different um, household members uh, manage the, any behaviour or supports that the child needs. And then also trying to, of course, ask really the direct questions around what do we see with that concentration? What do we see um, if they are being asked to do a task that they 
may have to do but not be overly interested in. Often people will give us quite a lot of feedback on a child concentrating on a task they really like or, a, or concentrating on watching TV or using a screen. And that's important to note, but it's probably not the critical bit of information that we're after. I think all of us, even people with ADHD, can often concentrate quite well on something that they're really, really interested in. But I'm often more interested in how they can concentrate on a required and usual standard task, either sitting doing their reading at school or doing their reading homework at home or involved in a game that they're quite interested in but isn't very, very interesting to them. So I think that that's a really important aspect. Um, and also then talking about that sort of hyperactive and impulsive behaviour. So I'm interested in, you know, I'll often get reports of children that just act like they have a motor or they've always been on the go. Um, the child that will be standing in a line at school and will just sort of be the child to jump out and say something impulsively or say something silly or be in the wrong place. So that will help you up to build a picture, both of the ADHD symptoms themselves and importantly, how that might be impacting on the child themselves and the rest of the family. So we decide to talk to the teacher or get the family to talk to the teacher. Are there any sort of screening questionnaires that we should be asking school to fill in? So I think that, I always think that when we're looking at the diagnosis of ADHD, we need to think about um, getting the history and, and often just the words in the history is the really important place to start. Um, and then potentially moving on to standardised questionnaires is usually a, a relatively standard way of, of managing a diagnosis. Um, it will depend on people's local local areas and what, what is required. Um, I think that... Uh, we have, there are some uh, shorter screening or shorter diagnostic tools. One that I know we've started using quite extensively in the Auckland area is the SNAPS questionnaire, which comes out of a Canadian group, CADRA, uh, which is free, which is helpful. So if your local area are using these, I think these can be good tools to use to get a real sense um, on a more objective level whether we're seeing symptoms of ADHD. The one that people will see quite commonly is the Connors questionnaire, which is far longer, uh, and, and there is also a cost involved, and I would imagine that would often be more used at the secondary care level when people are firmly reaching a diagnostic stage at that point. But I think at that earlier stage, getting a good history, um, including some screening questionnaires, such as a SNAPS questionnaire, can be really valuable. So Mum also asked us about dyslexia the fact that this child can't read or doesn't want to read. Before making a diagnosis, should we exclude this? And if so, how do we do it? I think it's really important to think about ADHD in that wider context of neurodevelopmental disorders. So we know that ADHD happens in about 5 to 6% of people. We know that autism spectrum disorder is probably a little more or a little less than 1 in 100 we know that specific learning difficulties or dyslexia is very common. But the thing is, these things all hold hands with each other. So where one sits, another is, another is likely as well. So there's a cluster of children who often tend to have a number of these different conditions. And I think for any child where I'm thinking of ADHD, I'm actually thinking which of the neurodevelopmental conditions does this child have? So I think it's really important to think about all of those conditions uh, and be thinking about it in a wide context before we narrow it down. Now, in truth, often as a, as a doctor and a medical person, 
ADHD is the bit that I'm dealing with, but as I often say to families, it's not that the other bits aren't important, it's that this is the bit that I'm going to actively manage, whereas I'm going to leave the specific learning difficulty more in the school context. So if I was to think about specific learning disorders or dyslexia, uh, what we're really talking about is children for whom learning particularly in particular areas, such as reading or mathematics, um, are finding that particularly difficult. It is really important to think it sits very, um, very commonly alongside ADHD, and one can often think, well, which, which one should I treat first? I think it's actually a case of understanding what we're dealing with and then making proactive decisions about which part we're going to treat. So if I have a child with a specific learning disorder and ADHD, uh, we know that the treatment for a specific learning disorder is going to be finding the right strategies to use in the education context and using those, re-evaluating, using a different strategy, seeing how that goes. So I call it the real chip away at treating, whereas ADHD, of course, and we'll talk about it more in the next podcast, is something that we can um, both look at environmental and behavioural strategies to use and also about medication as well. Often what we'll find is that if we have a specific learning disorder and we have ADHD, treating the ADHD, diagnosing it, will help us to understand why that child is having trouble concentrating on the work and being able to then concentrate on the work better will allow those new new um, new and tailored strategies to be able to take hold. So I think it's very important to think about these other aspects. Of course, one of the difficulties we have in New Zealand is actually the diagnosis of dyslexia, largely because our system as a whole has moved away from um, easily accessible psychology services within, um, within the health and education sector. Um, what this means is it's very important to link in with teachers early. Uh, teachers will usually have a very good idea of a child's learning level, and they will have a very good idea of what strategies they have utilised, what is helpful and what is not helpful. Often it's really hard as parents, even though we know teachers know that well, to actually get that information um, because it may be put in a school report in a way that we, it, it, it's hard to really understand or that might not be what's communicated. So I think with specific learning difficulties or anyone will be thinking about any, any ADHD or behaviour thing, it's really important to get in there talking to the teacher and really understanding what the teachers know. There's a number of um, families who then decide they would like to look at further assessment. It is very pricey. But um, if it is within the family's financial means to do that, an educational psychology assessment can often be helpful to really drill down into the particular uh, learning level, what strategies may be effective to support that child from a dyslexia perspective. Colette, you've mentioned uh, that educational psychology services are expensive, which brings up equity across for families, and um, this is always something that we're quite concerned about in general practice, the fact that there is such a disparity across uh, various families and different deciles. Do you have any comments about this? Yes, got two different thoughts on this. The first is that um, I, I, I think uh, I absolutely hear and, and feel very strongly um, in, 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 with the same um, concerns around equity in this area. 
our education um, system and the philosophy is that actually they should be able to intervene and get the right tailored supports in place for a child without the need for an educational psychology assessment. So I think that even if we don't have equity at the level of a particular assessment, we need to absolutely push for equity in the second area, which is the ability to intervene and support these children and have aspirations for excellent educational outcomes for all children. And I think that ties back in with where we, where, we, where we were about really operationalising that relationship with schools and that need for individualised support for children. Perfect. So we need to examine this child, and I suppose, again, we're ruling things out rather than ruling them in. What sort of an examination would you expect to be performed on a child with Miss M's history? So I think just a standard physical examination in the first part, just to check we're not missing an underlying medical condition, not that it will usually be directly impacting, but it may have a secondary impact if you've got a child who's just miserable because they're really constipated. That might be tipping their symptoms over the edge from a functional perspective. So I think standard physical examination for a start, really helpful um, if we go on to prescribe medications to have a good cardiac exam, including a good um, family history, particularly related to long QT or collapse or anything like that, just just to have that excluded. Um, we do need to be uh, just rule out that we're not dealing with something left field, a particular syndrome, that we don't have um, skin findings consistent with neurofibromatosis or anything along those lines. I think also just with examination, and this will be more the discussion that you'd be having with, with a child, just thinking from a behavioural perspective whether there's anything else such as features of autism spectrum disorder, what the child's eye contact is, how they manage to have a conversation with you as well. Um, and for younger children also um, ensuring that from a developmental perspective, they seem to be about where, where they would typically be. So if you've got a sort of five or six year old, ensuring that you don't think there's a significant developmental delay associated. Should we arrange any hearing and vision tests or any other specific tests before a diagnosis is made on this child? I'm always really keen for any child with any developmental concern to have standard vision and standard hearing testing. So if that can be uh, commenced from primary care, I think that is excellent. Seldom would this be the primary reason for the child's difficulties, but it's not uncommon at all to have a child for whom... Uh, they actually do need glasses um, or there's a degree of hearing loss. And I think, I always think that these children, if you're already having difficulties, you need to optimise everything in every way. So I think that's really important. When we start thinking about um, more specialised testing, such as auditory processing disorder testing or behavioural optometry, I think these are a bit more individualised and I sit more on the fence and certainly don't think that these should always be a routine thing. Um, I'm aware, first up, both of them are expensive, um, so it becomes an equity issue here. I think also the degree at which these things may be contributing is really hard to know in the, in the, in the early stages. We know 
for example, that auditory processing disorder is, a, is an important condition. There's great work that comes out of the University of Auckland around this and looking at how our school classrooms are set up and really understanding that, that some children may have a lot of difficulties differentiating hearing sounds. So we know this is a real disorder. Uh, actually, what we should be doing about it is, is a far harder thing to completely determine. And I often think starting with a more broad assessment before targeting particular diagnoses is often more useful. So talking about diagnosis now, what is the diagnostic criteria and how do we start to move towards this with this child? We tend to use the DSM-5 criteria here in New Zealand in most settings, which really means we're looking at two main things. So I'm going to read them out to you. A persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity that interferes with functioning or development as characterised by below. And so under the inattention subset, we have nine uh, criteria and we need to tick six of them. So these will be things like failing to pay close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork or has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities or often doesn't seem to listen when spoken to directly, or avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks. So it's these type of inattention type symptoms. We've got nine of them, and six of the nine um, end up being diagnostic. But I wouldn't jump into necessarily counting six or not in the early stage, because I think a diagnostic process is quite thorough and asks these questions in a number of ways. Ditto within the hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms. We're looking at things like children who fidget with or tap hands or feet or squirm in their seat. Who often leave seat in situations when you're meant to actually remain seated. Who often run about and climb. Who are often unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly. Is often on the go or acting as if driven by a motor. Talking excessively, blurting out answers, difficulty waiting turn often interrupting or intruding. So from a diagnostic perspective, those are the type of features that we're looking at under DSM-4. These need to have been present prior to the age of 12. Under the previous DSM, it previously said six, but what's become apparent is there are some children for whom the difficulties do become more evident as you get older. And I think in part that can be, often particularly our school classrooms in the first couple of years can be quite accommodating to children who come in at different developmental levels and with different levels of strengths and weaknesses. So it can be that the difficulties do become more apparent as you become older. And one of the really important things about diagnostic criteria is we need to see this in more than one setting. So if we have reports of this type of behaviour at school, but never there at home, or vice versa. We need to do a lot more thinking and a lot more looking into these things. So most of the time in developmental paediatrics, when we're looking at these more behavioural-based um, conditions, we're always thinking that the diagnostic workup is taking a good history, getting a collateral history from another place, doing a standardised type assessment or questionnaire, and then an examination and talking to the child or young person themselves. And I think what we will do, or what I'll do in a diagnostic um, setting, is really go through all of those steps and putting all that information together at the end and determining whether we think they fit 
with the diagnosis of ADHD and what other diagnoses or other presenting complaints might be happening alongside as well. Perfect. Thanks, Colette. So often these families need more support. Where can we go to get support for these families? Who should we be talking to? Who should we be telling them to go and see? I think this can be a real issue for families um, with both very good and also very poor information available um, on the internet and um, with organisations they can link to. Um, often we will link families in with ADHD New Zealand um, and there's some good information about ADHD on the Kids Health website and some good links to both local and overseas organisations who can assist. Often parents do need to be the driver of this in the long term. Uh, and I think right from the beginning, putting families in the driving seat of being advocates for their children and gathering information that is helpful is very useful. You mentioned earlier, Colette, that behavioural problems often go hand in hand with these children. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. So look, behaviour I always think of as a symptom the same way as a cough. So behaviour just means the child's trying to communicate something and we need to find out what they're trying to communicate and why. I think that often ADHD can become a, an explanation for a child's behaviour, uh, particularly if they're impulsive particularly if they're hyperactive or particularly if they're inattentive. And I had it um, put to me once, and I don't like this word at all, but said actually sometimes families don't want the diagnosis of ADHD, but actually the label of ADHD takes away the label of naughty that that child had beforehand. And I really don't like that word, but I think sometimes understanding a child's behaviour in the context of the fact that their brain's just wired a bit differently they have a different way of looking at the world, can really help people to understand that behaviour. I think when we see behaviour too, we also need to think about the other things that can be happening there, and particularly around, could this be another neurodevelopmental disorder, such as autism spectrum disorder, is that what's manifesting as behaviour here? Um, and also thinking about, you know, going from first principles here and checking that we're not um, in a situation with family violence or... Uh, trauma for children, or those type of things. I think that we need to think about managing behaviour, in part by understanding the concept of ADHD and managing it, but also by actually acknowledging that most of us as parents know how hard it can be to manage children's behaviour at times, and actually we need to really help and assist families with that. I'm often struck by families for whom the children's behaviour is really causing functional difficulties for this family on a day-to-day -day basis. Every time they want to get out the door in the morning, every time everyone gets home from work in the afternoon, it's really tricky. But when you suggest an evidence-based treatment for this, such as an Incredible Years course, it's too hard to do. And I get why it's too hard to do, because you need to commit to your 10 to 14 sessions and it needs to be after hours. But I'm often struck by thinking if this was a treatment for a medical condition, people may not question the need for 14 sessions, yet we have a really significant behaviour condition here which is causing significant difficulties. So I think we do always need to approach behaviour by first thinking 
is it a diagnosis that could explain this behavior and will understanding and treatment of that help? And secondly, regardless of diagnosis, how do we support families to uh, support children with positive behavioral outcomes? Fantastic, thank you. So we're going to discuss the management in our next podcast, but I just wanted to conclude this podcast, Colette, do you have some take-home messages for our listeners? Yes, I think it's really important to always be thinking we need a good history, we need a collateral history, um, and we need to actually talk to the child and young person and family themselves to really understand what's going on here. I think we need to always think about how this is impacting function because really function is what it always comes down to in the end. I think we always need to look for associated conditions, even if ADHD seems to be the thing that's jumping at us. We need to think more widely about what else could be associated. And I think that we need to help to build families to be advocates for their children. And we need to be part of a team that is going to be family, education, medical, that can wrap around this family and child and help them to move forward. Thanks, Colette. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources that we've discussed here today. Thanks for listening.